Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. You don't get loyal employees by not rewarding them. You get loyal top talent by rewarding them and we want them to feel appreciated and do the best they can for our tenants and our welcome to the best ever show the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff hello best ever listeners welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show i'm ash patel and i'm with today's guest jordan fisher Jordan is joining us from San Clemente, California. He is the principal at Next Wave Investors, a Southern California-based private equity firm focused on multifamily investments. Jordan has almost 20 years of experience in this space, and his portfolio consists of being a GP on over $500 million in acquisitions. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Ash. It's our pleasure. Jordan, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Sure. So I'm a little old, so my background's kind of long. I've had a few careers so far. I went to college and I was an army officer for a few years. And during that period of time, I was a great period of time. I loved it. I had trouble living on army officer's salary. I was stationed in Hawaii. And I remember at the time, gas was like a buck 60 in Hawaii. And I thought that was so ridiculously expensive. It sounds like it's free now, but 
anyway, so I ended up running up credit card debt and I'd have like these anxious nights where I couldn't sleep. Like, how the hell am I ever going to pay off my credit card debt? And so I got out of the service and it was late nineties and there's tail end of the dot-com boom and Y2K work. And I got a job as in IT consulting and I didn't really study software engineering or anything like that, but I did well in school and I studied math and science and I just promised I'd learn it. So I did, and I did pretty well. And during that period, I was able to pay off my credit card debt. So that was like a huge relief for me. And I was like, man, yeah, never, ever want to get in credit card debt again. So, you know, I had a little bit of money in my pocket and this was, you know, beginning of 2000s. And like a lot of people, you're just like, what do I do? I, I, I tried buying stocks before and I got cream. I'd see a stock go from hundred down to five and I'd be like, oh, well, let's bargain now. And then it would go down to zero. But I just always thought there were professionals that that's what they did was study stocks and there's technical analysis and then there's fundamental analysis. And then a hundred percent of the people investing were smarter and more educated about stocks than me. So I was like, this is not the place for me. So my old man, he was in the real estate industry where he sold used refrigerators and stoves to apartment buildings. And that's what he did for a living in LA. I do deliveries for him. And I kind of was familiar with apartments. And so I started thinking maybe I'll, I'll invest in an apartment building. So I was working in IT and I was living in Huntington Beach. For those of your listeners that know Southern California, I was driving up to a city called Torrance. And in between those two cities is a city called Long Beach. And Long Beach is probably the one really run down, not nice city where you can be a mile from the beach and actually be in a scary neighborhood. So it's cheap. And I was like, you know, this isn't going to last. This is California. Beach closed property is going to go up. So I drive, I'd start driving apartment buildings for sale and I'd start triplexes, not like big apartment buildings, like triplexes and duplexes and just get a feel for what you the rents are going for in the different little pockets of Long Beach and what the prices are selling for. So during that time, I bought my first investment it was a triplex in, in one of the scarier sections of Long Beach, but it was still only like a mile and a half from the beach. So I felt this is going to be okay. And in the meantime, I started my own IT consulting firm. And I spent about seven or eight years building that firm, buying real estate, doing trades, maybe some private partnerships. And I sold that firm in 2014 and I had a little bit of money. And I didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life. I know I liked multifamily a lot and like real estate a lot. And I met my business partner, David, just through our daughters and hanging out. And he was looking to make a change. And we met another person through my kids that he worked for a mortgage brokerage, but he also said I could help raise equity and you can actually do this professionally. And that's how I kind of learned about this business was just through people telling me here, you, you've got this track record and we can raise money and you can do this professionally. And so we started Next Wave at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. And it's just, we've done a lot of trades. We've got a full cycle on almost 30 deals and you know, keep going. So our strategy right now is just value add. We focus on the Western markets. So Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Oregon, Washington. We've got a couple of deals in Texas. And the reason we pick those markets is in the West, it seems like everything's going pretty well. The West are all strong markets, but we want stuff that is within a direct flight of Orange County because David and I both go travel a lot. We would love to do a deal in Southern California, but we just can't figure out how people make money. Interesting. Okay. So I had a somewhat of a similar path. I was in IT in 99. So during the tech bubble, yeah. you saw a bunch of overnight millionaires from the stock market and yeah. then all of a sudden that went away. 
But we were lucky to have jobs in 2000, 2001, because the economy collapsed and Mm -hmm. we were in IT and things were good at the time. You strike me as somebody that gets bored easily (laughs) and you're always looking for the next big thing, right? I do get bored easily. I have a little ADD somewhere in me that I can't get rid of, but we're not really changing strategies or chasing deals. I kind of got into IT just on accident. I was getting out of the army and I never really thought about civilian careers. I didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I was like 25, 26 and like the consulting aside, because I was good at it and you got to see different industries and different careers within those industries, HR and finance. But it wasn't something I really had a passion for. But on the side, I was doing these projects, the multifamily, just with my own small savings that I had and doing stuff with maybe some family deals. So I really liked that. And as far as we're in a lot of markets, and that's because we don't like that. I mean, we think that that's tough. It kind of sucks to go out to make a whole trip just for a look on one deal. But the reason why we're in so many markets is because in the West, things got really heated hyper-competitive in in Las Vegas. So we have to not just believe in the market, we got to believe in the deal. And when you can't find any deals in those markets, then you got to look somewhere else because we're selling deals as well. We do reposition them fairly quickly. And if you can take a win, you take a win. So you got to find new stuff to buy. And so that's why we got into so many markets. We're really trying not to enter any new markets. Hopefully things become a little more calm We really believe in Phoenix and Vegas. Like those are great places. You know, they're growing strong. We just couldn't find any deals we believed in because the prices got so competitive. What are your thoughts on the people buying those three cap deals? I think it's funny. I don't like to talk anywhere. First, I would say we were scratching our heads because everyone says they're conservative or whatever. But to win a deal, there's never a deal where you're the only guy looking at it. In general, To win a deal, you're the high bidder. (laughs) So we're aware of that, but we would get beat out by 10%, multiple millions of dollars. So we think that there are going to be some people that feel some pain because we know that there's aggressive financing and we know that there's high leverage debt out there that maybe didn't cap their floater as much as they should. And we think there's going to be people that have a little bit of a hangover after the party. But we talk to brokers and we talk to our lenders and they're basically saying everybody's paying their mortgage right now. And I'm surprised, but maybe we're too negative, but we'll see what happens in the next year. I don't know. Can you describe caps on floaters? That's basically capping interest rates, right? Yeah. How does that work? Okay. So when you buy a floating rate mortgage, it's based on an index and the common index is SOFR. It used to be LIBOR, but they changed to SOFR, and I don't even know what SOFR stands for, but it's really similar to the Fed funds rate. And it's that index plus a spread. So common spreads a year ago were maybe 3.25%. So the index was at 10%. The spread was at 3.25%. And so your net rate was 3.35%. So as that rate goes up, then your rate goes up. So SOFR has gone from 10 bips to I think it's around, depending on the SOFR, three and a half to close to 4% right now. So your rate would be close to seven and a half percent. Well, lenders don't want you to go there. So you have to buy a hedge. So basically we bought hedges that capped your index at 1%. So if the index goes above from 1% to 2%, your rate cap pays the difference. They pay that one point difference. So it basically locks in and captures your net mortgage cost. 
And Jordan, um, these are for bridge loans or interest-only loans? Yeah, mostly for bridge loans. But there's floating rate agency loans that can go for 10 years too. But a year ago, the debt funds and these bridge loans were cheaper or just as cheap as the agency loans. So most people were buying with these bridge debt loans. And I would imagine buying these caps is quite expensive. It is now. So that's the thing. So there's these companies that forecast what the index is going to be at. So maybe a year ago, or maybe a little more than a year ago, if you looked at the curve, the curve never went above 2%. So if you were just going to cap your rate at 3%, you're paying very little because it was never supposed to get there. So it's funny because my business partner, I'm a little more loose and he's a little more conservative, which makes us a good partnership. So we bought our caps. We capped for year one, so far at 50 bips, year two at 100 bips, and year three at 150 bips. And I was like, man, we're just throwing away our money. It's like life insurance, right? If you don't yeah. die, you never get paid. So if SOFR never reaches its limits, then it's just a waste of money. It's an insurance product. Of course, now I'm very, very happy we got those caps. And what does that cost? On a $30 million purchase, what does that cap cost? Well, again, it's going to depend on what you're capping your index at. But right now, to cap it, probably 4%. The last I saw, there was basically two points on your loan for the rate cap. Whoa. Yeah. So for the past year, we've tried to stop using floating rate debt because it would be a surprise. You'd budget maybe one point for your rate cap and then you really don't know until the day before you close when you buy the rate cap what the price is going to be because it changes daily. Interesting. Yeah. So for us, you go to the closing table and you budgeted one point for your rate cap and now it's two points. That throws you, you're short to close. So you got to find that money somewhere. And I don't like surprises at the closing table. Yeah. Thank you for explaining that. I'm a non-residential commercial investor, uh-huh. so we don't have agency debt and we can't buy floating cap rates. Oh, okay. So we just do long-term fixed debt. Yeah. Which Jordan, nice a couple to be. <laughs> yes. Yeah, in hindsight, it Probably is. Probably really yeah. happy with that right now. <laughs> yes. You mentioned a couple of times you can't find a deal in these markets, so you've moved on. What constitutes a deal to you? Okay. We are return-driven. So most value add, you want a 20-year-old building, been maintained very well, it just needs a refresh, right? And you can put in some some higher-end fixtures and push rent. That's what the book says. That's it. That is center of the target. And we never get that, ever. Because when those properties come out and they do come out, there's way bigger companies. They might have lower return thresholds for their investors. So we just, we get outbid. I mean, we get crushed. It's like the brokers don't even take us seriously. They won't schedule a tour. <laughs> so oh, hold on. Wait a minute. You've got almost 20 years in this business, almost $500 million in acquisitions, and you don't have credibility with these brokers. I'm being a little bit facetious here, but the reality is we don't get those buildings. We don't win them. There are firms that are better at fundraising. They can raise money easier and they can raise money either I don't know exactly their magic. Everyone's kind of got their secret sauce, right? But they're able to get to higher prices faster than we are. Yeah. So you don't have the reputation of overpaying for deals. I think so. But overpaying is a different word. There's these companies out there that they're big companies, right? And they buy things at higher prices than us with less leverage because our investors, we try and deliver them high teen returns. Their investors, they're happy with low teen returns. So they can pay more because they have a lower threshold. So- they're good companies, and I'm not saying they're overpaying. I'm just saying they're paying a price that we can't pay. And so we don't win those deals. So we end up getting the deals like maybe it's an older vintage. 
maybe it's a worse neighborhood, something where it's not the center of the strike zone. There's something about it, which the majority of investors don't want. And because of that, we can get it at a price that makes sense, we believe, for our investors, and we've done well for them. And so we try and make money, and we try to really be dispassionate about the property. I do have some things. I really try to avoid flat roofs because I hate flat roofs. They always leak. I like properties that have balconies for their residents because balconies aren't for sitting and viewing anything. They're for storing your stuff. And if people don't have the balcony to store their stuff, they're going to store their stuff in the common areas. There's like little things I like, but at the end of the day, I'm returns driven. So if there's a property that I don't like a lot of things about it, but the value's there and we can deliver a return, we're going to buy it. Jordan, what metric do you use for returns? Is it cash on cash? No, we are primarily driven by IRRs. And so most of our investors, they're not investing with us for living off of. They're not retired folks that are living off. They're trying to build their wealth. So it's really, can we take a property that's got whatever problems with it, but we can buy it at a low price, add value and sell at a high price and make their returns. And that's really what drives our investors. And are you specific to class A, B, C, all the above? No, all things being equal, everybody likes class A better. Class B is really where my favorite spot to be, but we do class C. I mean, we have done some really tough projects in tough neighborhoods. If the price is right, you got to factor in everything and you can deliver real returns there. It's tough work, but if the returns there, we'll do it. What is your bottleneck today? Is it deals or is it investors? It's probably investors. David and I, we just kind of figured this out on our own. We didn't really go into mentorship or anything, which in hindsight, we probably should have done, but we were a little older and a little more established. And we just sort of went into the business and neither of us came from a family that had any money connections. Neither of us had any sales experience. So we thought, let's just focus on doing really good properties. Let's underwrite well, let's manage well, let's turn the property well, and didn't really pay attention to fundraising. And it's hard work. Learning to fundraise is tough. And there's people that have grown much, much faster than us because they're better at fundraising. So it's something we're learning and we're working on, but it's not our core expertise. Well, let's dive into that evolution. Way back in the day, you had somebody that said, you guys should do bigger deals and I can help you raise capital. Yeah. If you could walk me through the evolution from back then to where you are today, what steps have you implemented to increase the number of investors that you have? So the way we did it is they're middlemen, right? They're equity brokers. And most of our first deals were done primarily with equity brokers. Now, when you do a deal with those guys that help you raise money, they still want the GP, which is us, the general partners, to have skin in the game, 10% co-invest or 15% co-invest. So at that point in time, if the co-invest was maybe $300,000, we would do very few deals because we didn't have that much money. So we started reaching out to friends to co-invest on the GP side of things, and we'd give them a share of our promote and economics. So that network of GP co-investors grew just through word of mouth and grew. And then we finally got to the point where we didn't have enough room in our GP to satisfy all investors. So we started doing some smaller deals with those GP investors, just as our standard LP investors. And we kind of moved them over. So just kind of through word of mouth and networking, our investor list is probably maybe hundred to 150 people. Most of them done multiple deals. 
And just through word of mouth and through LinkedIn and social media, we kind of brag, <laughs> I don't know, lack of any better words, right? You, you promote know, got, yourself, you market yourself. Yeah, yeah. And we've got MailChimp and we kind of advertise our deals, but it's mostly just organically been growing. And still, it requires a lot of equity to do deals now. And so most deals we do now, if it requires 10 million equity, we can raise half of that with our network and then we'll go with another fundraiser to raise the other half. So it's kind of a combination to really get there because it's a lot of money. It's a lot of trust from people to do that much. They've earned the money and they pay taxes and it's incredible that people trust us with their money. So it takes a lot of people to really kick in and do a deal. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez, 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets, will be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCON.com. Everyone is looking for a recession-resilient investment. How can you try to prevent from losing money by picking the wrong fund and sponsor? Right now, you can get Reliant Real Estate Management's free guide, 10 Things to Consider in a Real Estate Investment Fund, by visiting besteverreliant.com. Answer questions like, is the organization's focus on you? And does the fund keep employees? Reliant Real Estate Management is ranked one of the top 20 largest self-storage operators in the country with $1 billion in self-storage assets. After completing three funds, and selling 38 properties with $0 of investor principal loss. They have an average project level IRR of 33% in just over 3.5 years. Visit besteverreliant.com right now to receive the 10 things to consider in a real estate investment fund and get access to their latest investment opportunities. That's besteverreliant.com, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R-R-E-L-I-A-N-T.com. Jordan, again, you've got that incredible track record. You've got the experience. You've got the team. What steps could you take to formalize and really boost your fundraising? That's a great question. And it's kind of strange because David and I, we talk about it, right? You know, there's marketing companies out there that really promote, and there's probably a lot of marketing efforts we could do. But it's kind of strange too, because we get some people that they'll be like, okay, we'd like to invest. And then we might not have a deal for months. And it's kind of weird to kind of keep them hot and horny when you don't have a deal for a long time. But we also don't want to be in a position where we're doing a deal that maybe we're stretching a little bit just to just get to a deal, do a deal done. Yeah. yeah. And so we kind of just like to have this organic people, like we're going to put a bunch of people on our interest list and we have someone we really believe in. We're going to bring it to you guys. But we're not out pounding the pavement because you're like, hey, hey, we'd love you to invest with us. And then they'll be like, well, okay. And then you're like, okay, well, I'll call you in three months. <laughs> okay. So let's dive into that a little bit. Do you only reach out when you have a deal? 
Yeah. (laughs) Listen, we've only been talking for 15 minutes and you're a fun guy to talk to. I want to know more. I want to know about your background. I want to know about that 20 years of experience. Why not put that out there more often? I don't know. I think a little bit, David and I, neither of us are front guys. Both of us want to be behind the scenes a little bit. We're not great at um, getting on a mic and talking to a bunch of people. So it's probably just not our comfort zone a little bit. Even these kinds of things is a little bit outside where I feel comfortable. So it's something we should be doing more. It just feels weird. <laughs> well, <laughs> what was the highest dollar amount of one deal that you've done? I think the largest deal we did was a $60 million deal. Okay. Was that out of your comfort zone? Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, this is no different, right? Yeah. Push yourself. You've got the personality. You've got the experience to share. I think if you put yourself out there, your investors will feel more connected to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you I, stay present in their minds. You're a hundred percent right. And that's it. it. Push you know, yourself. Yeah, I got it. You're a hundred percent right. And it's like one of those things where you, you know the right thing to be doing. And then it's also tough time-wise though, I'll say, because David and I really give a shit. We just do. I have deals where I've done with no investors and I'll take way more risk with my own money than I will with somebody else's money. So we are on the road a lot. I mean, every week checking on the deals and we want to execute according to the game plan with no excuses. So that does take away. We haven't really scaled. I think to scale, you got to step back on some things, right? You can't do everything yourself. And the thing that we really haven't been able to step back on is executing on the game plan because I never, ever, ever want to have to call an investor and say, we screwed this one up. We screwed up a lot of stuff, but they made money. (laughs) Okay. So you're being tough on yourself by saying you haven't scaled the way you should have. On the flip side, look how well you've grown organically. That's true. And we're pretty proud of what we've got. We've got a stable of really happy investors and we've got enough scale to where we feel great. Could we have gotten bigger? We could have, right? But we feel great about where we are. And I love working every day. David loves working every day. We've never gotten a single argument. So everything's really good, but it's a constant grind and a little bit more scale would always help with fees and paying more staff, but we're just not willing to force the issue. And so we're happy with where we're at for sure. We're incredibly lucky. Jordan, I'm going to guess that you and David are not big on social media. I do a little more than him. I had nothing to do with my time. So I was, and I was seeing people. So I, I did develop a little bit of a following on LinkedIn, but this is a face made for radio. So I'm not I there. I get that a lot take, too. <laughs> so I'm not out there taking pictures of myself in the buildings or doing YouTube videos of myself, but I do try and, and write some stuff on LinkedIn. And especially if I have an original thought, then, then I try and post something. Well, two good topics for your posts. One, talk about your long-term partnership and how you guys have never gotten into a fight. There's got to be a lot of lessons there that other partners can learn from. And then two, you mentioned you're on the road a lot. People want to know that. I want to know you're not just sitting behind a desk crunching numbers. You're out on the field. You're looking at the units. You're managing properties. You're hands-on. Yeah. I think it's really important for people to know yeah. And I think you've got a lot of lessons to share. So I, I, look, do. I don't want to hear it, man. Push yourself. <laughs> you got to get out there. You've got so much to offer. 
just how you grew organically, I think your investor base will grow organically based on that. I think you're right. I should share more. It's incredible. Usually when we go to the properties, they're not happy stories I want to share. It's like- Awesome. You know, Even better. Somebody backed into a <laughs> carport. Now I got to pay 15 grand to rebuild it. <laughs> yeah. It looks like my business partner just took a video of a strip mall. She had to evict a tenant and there's a team of sheriff's officers removing belongings. Yeah. I, all the years I've done commercial real estate, we've never had to evict anybody. She's been doing it a very short time and already has an eviction, but that was cool to watch. Yeah. So share everything, man. That's how people get to know, like, and trust you. Yeah, right? no, that's a great point. And I'm going to make a list to, to start doing that a little bit more because they're not going to like everything they see. I'll tell you that, but awesome. they, they might appreciate that they don't have to deal with it. <laughs> or, you know, if there's a takeaway from them, yeah, mission accomplished. Back to picking your brain. How do you pick markets? When you expand to different markets, what metrics do you use? We don't do a lot of deep dive on markets. We like the West in general, and they're for different reasons. But for the most part, if you go to Portland, Salt Lake City, Nevada, Phoenix, right? Those are all very fast growing cities. People love them. They're lower cost than Southern California, and they're expanding really quickly with great job growth and, and great demand drivers. So what we try and do is really before we buy our first acquisition there, learn the markets within the little niches within there. Are you in a C neighborhood? Are you in a B neighborhood? And I'll tell you, we've gotten surprised before, specifically Salt Lake. There's this one deal that just stands out in my head. We bought this deal and it was like a mile away from a Trader Joe's and you're just, okay, that's not bad, right? <laughs> you would think. I want well, to live I was there. wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> it was a terrible, terrible location. This drug epidemic everywhere. And so you have a move out where somebody just really beat the unit to hell and you'd renovate it and you'd get your good rent. It turned out to be a drug addict or a drug dealer. And then six months later, you have to spend four or five grand on a renovated unit. So you really want to know those corners and those pockets because you can't just necessarily judge by the retail. Retail is generally a good indicator. You want to stay away from the pawn shops and the massage parlors and all those things. What was your exit on that Salt Lake deal? We actually did really well on that deal. We sold to another firm, but you know this. Everybody for the last 10 years, compressing cap rates has bailed out every bad deal you've done. We've missed on every budget and still made a lot of money because cap rates went down. So that party I expect to be ending. So you really got to make sure your underwriting is on point and you budget for everything because we've done really well. We've executed as best we can, but at the same time, just like everybody, rising tide lifts all ships. A lot of mistakes got covered up by compressing cap rates. Totally agree. And you and I have the luxury of seeing a number of market cycles where a lot of people under the age of 33 have only seen good times. That is so right. Me and David, he worked for a REIT, so he was in the, in the real estate industry. You know, I just had my own personal portfolios and some friends and family deals. And 2008 was a bummer, man. Instead of income coming to me, I was putting money in just to hold on to the buildings because rents can go down. These forecasters always say there's a housing shortage, all this stuff. I'm like, there's a housing shortage until people lose their jobs and they move back in with their parents. You can tighten up and things can go vacant. And leverage, it makes your deal a screaming home run in good times, but it can kill you in bad times. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. Wall Street people, 
will never talk about the stock market going down. Real <laughs> estate people never want to talk about rents going down. I love the shortage of number of units, housing units we have. I get it. What does that mean? Does that mean the party's never going to end yeah, until we yeah. meet that shortage? That doesn't make no, sense. It doesn't make sense. And we had this weird thing in COVID where people got these checks from the government and said, okay, I'm going to go move out from mom's house and get my own place. Well, just as quickly, they can move back in with mom. A hundred percent. And it's happening now. There's a lot of news articles I'm sure you've seen where people are moving back with their parents or parents are moving with their kids mm -hmm. because you can't afford your own place anymore. Yeah. Rents went up really quickly. Yeah. Jordan, your investor split investor returns, how do you structure those? Generally, we don't do preferred equity. It's called peri pursue, right? Everyone gets returns on an even basis, usually to a 10% or so. And then after it, our investors get a 10% return on their money and all their money back, then we get a 25% promote, which is 25% of the profits above a 10% and your return of capital. So that's generally how our deals are structured. Oh, hold on. I like that. So investors get the first 10%. The GP too. So we, okay. everybody gets on an even basis, the GP and the LP, you get a 10% return and you get all of your money back. And then after everyone's gotten a 10%, and that's annualized, right? So that's, if you hold it for three years and compounded. So you get the 10% internal rate of return. And then after that, we get a 25% of everything above the 10% return. And the investors get 75%. Yes. Wow. How did you come up with that? I think we're pretty much center of the fairway. I don't think we're cheap. I don't think we're expensive. I think that's about what most people in the business. The typical is just, just 7% pref and then 70-30 split. And then maybe a waterfall at the end of that. Mm -hmm. But having the GPs share the first 10%, I've never heard. I like it though. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's the way we do it. Look, we've had people that have asked, can we put our money in front of your money? And our answer is no. <laughs> it would feel pretty crappy if I worked really hard and got somebody a 10% return and I lost money. So yeah. we should all be on the same footing. Makes sense. What is your best real estate investing advice ever? My best real estate investing advice is I see a lot of pro formas that really try and make the returns by cutting the expenses. You'll see a deal that's operating at $1,500 per door in payroll. And the broker, or I'll see some of my peers will advertise part of their return is by taking that $1,500 per door payroll down to $1,000 per door payroll. And I think that is the absolute wrong way to try and make money. Your people are gonna deliver the product. Your people, they're gonna lease the unit. They're going to be the boots on the ground to oversee the turns of the unit. They're going to collect. They're going to evict. They're going to fix your shit. And they're doing all that. And if you get a bad one, that bad one will cost you so much because your project is going to suffer. So my advice is do not try and save money on payroll. In fact, I overpay on payroll because I want the best people to deliver the highest rents and the best collections and the highest resident satisfaction. And I want them out there every day. And you don't get loyal employees by not rewarding them. You get loyal top talent by rewarding them. And we want them to feel appreciated and do the best they can for our tenants and our investors.
I love that contrarian advice because that's the first thing people do. I can cut here. Yeah. It's easy to cut staff. That's an easy number to cut. Yeah. No. Yeah. That, man, that's great advice. Jordan, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? <laughs> oh, okay. A little nervous here, but okay. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll go easy on you. Jordan, what's the best ever book you recently read? So best ever book I read was probably a book called Never Eat Alone. And it's just mostly about networking. It's more driven for sales. But for me, it just kind of helps remind me to really stay in front of people and connect with people because my comfort zone is probably emailing people and texting them instead of talking to them and maybe getting together physically. Not anymore. (laughs) Jordan, what's the best ever way you like to give back? I like to be connected. I don't like to write a check. So I give back mostly to people I know that are in need. There's there's a woman that we just happen to be friends with and, and her son had leukemia and she had to quit work and stay in the hospital with him because when he's got leukemia, he's got no ability mm-hmm. to fight off infections. Yeah. So she couldn't leave. So we paid all her bills while she was in and we've kind of taken in another person that my son is friends with. So the way I like to give back is to actually be personally involved with individuals live and not just cut a check. And Jordan, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Our website is nextwaveinvestors.com. My email is jordan at nwi for Next Wave Investors, multi for multifamily.com. So email me, go to the website, contact me. I love talking real estate, love meeting people. Generally, I'm terrible about the outreach, so it's better when you call me. (laughs) Jordan, I got to thank you for your time today. First, thank you for your service and sacrifice in the military. And we only touched on your experience. You got to come back. We got a deep dive into some of the deals that you've done. We talked a lot of high-level things, but I'd love to dive into some of these deals, some of the hard lessons learned, some of the wins. So if you're good, man, we're going to send you an invitation to come back. I love it. I had a great time talking to you, Ash. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome, brother. Thank you again. Just a great conversation. Best ever listeners, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.